0: Welcome, everyone, to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jeanette Cockroft, and today my guest is Beverly Chalmers, author of Birth, Sex, and Abuse, Women's Voices Under Nazi Rule. Welcome, Beverly.
1: Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting oh, it's me. It's nice to
0: have you. Um, would you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, that's a difficult, difficult question right up front. Um, I, am, I have two doctoral degrees, one in psychology and one in medicine, senior doctorate in medicine. Um, I have worked my entire life, academic life, in the field of perinatal health care. Uh, looking after mothers and babies, and particularly in difficult birthing situations. Um, I've done many years of academic work, many decades of academic work. I've also served as a consultant to the World Health Organization and UNICEF and multiple other United Nations health agencies, um, working in promoting better health care for mothers and babies. Um, Primarily in the former Soviet Union as it collapsed and moved towards uh, a different style of life um, in the 90s and early 2000s. So I did multiple travels, um, about 140 missions altogether over about 15 years into the countries of the former Soviet Union. And I've also lived and grew up in South Africa, then moved to Canada and where I've now lived for about 30 years. So yes, it's a very varied background, which makes it a little difficult to explain who I am and what I do. Indeed,
0: Uh, such important work though, it's extraordinary. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this particular book?
1: Okay, um, well, I have spent my life working in women giving, in situations where women give birth, which are often very difficult. Started off in South Africa, where I began to um, explore women's experiences of birth in various cultural groups. South Africa had four major groups at the time. This is during the apartheid era. So I uh, examined women's experiences of giving birth in, uh, when they were, were black women living under a very discriminatory system under apartheid, but also women um, of mixed cultural origin, women of Indian descent, um, Hindu and Muslim, and of course, women in my own cultural group, Caucasian women. So I actually explored women's experiences of birth in all four settings and have some many publications which look at those and publish those, including a book on African women's birth experiences. Um, and this was all at the time prior to apartheid. And then I was offered an amazing opportunity by my university to spend a year anywhere I wanted in the world. So oh, i <laughs> studying. So and working. So I had actually um, looked at African women's experiences of birth as their culture changed and as they moved from giving birth in rural settings to more um, urbanized settings and high care hospital situations. And I wanted to know how the cultural differences and practices had, had persisted or been lost or been ignored or been respected. So when, when the uh, Soviet Union showed signs of collapsing and did collapse in the late 1980s, 1989, so on, um, I became fascinated with uh, what was going to happen to childbirth in the former Soviet countries. And I applied for and got um, a grant, which is a long, amazing story, um, to spend a year anywhere I wanted. And I asked if I could spend it with the World Health Organization based in Copenhagen. Copenhagen because that was the center of the European region um, for WHO. <clears throat> so I did get this grant, and I went to work in Denmark, in Copenhagen, with the World Health Organization. And um, as luck would have it, have it, or chance, I'm not sure, um, the person I was going to work with uh, had reached retirement age at WHO, <clears throat> and um, his contract was terminated. So I arrived in his desk and was told I was taking over his job for the period of time that I was going to be there. So I suddenly landed in charge of uh, maternal child health, as it was called at at that time. It later changed to women's and children's health. Um, But um, I was working maternal child health and asked to go into the Soviet Union and explore what was needed in those countries because it had just collapsed. This was 1991. And if they had, the Soviet Union had just collapsed, and the countries were in a fair amount of uh, chaos, basically, with maternal child health care. Um, things there were really, as they had been for us in the early 1950s, 1940s, and it was like going back in a time warp. Anyway, I started to consult for WHO. I was sent into many countries in the former Soviet Union, first of all, to explore... Um, what they needed, what was the situation of mother and baby care and where were the gaps that they needed, what were they interested in learning about and how could we help as a United Nations health agency. And with that work, I began to collaborate with UNICEF, obviously mothers and children, mothers and babies involves UNICEF. And then we gradually was asked to work for other agencies like Medicine San Frontier, Save the Children, um, the USAID organization, um, and there were, there were a number of others and the Norwegian Board of Health, for example, until eventually individual countries invited me to come and consult for them as well, like the Republic of Moldova, which was an amazing country to work in. But overall, in the next 15 or so 20 years, I worked in the former Soviet Union. We developed I developed for WHO and obviously with teams of assistants um, training programs to improve mother and baby care um, and newborn care. Um, in these countries, and did many, many training programs in the countries where we trained local trainers until eventually I did myself out of a job. Basically, the local trainers became trainers themselves and continued, and my input was no longer needed. Um, but that was a remarkable run of affairs. But I became, during that process and time, I moved to live in Canada. And then in Canada, I met someone who worked in um, on female genital mutilation. She herself had experienced this. She was from Somalia originally, Somalia, um, but she was now living in Canada. And we collaborated together to do research on women's experiences of giving birth in Canada if they had previously experienced female genital mutilation. And that resulted in amazing research showing how the Canadian healthcare system did or did not respect and understand what they had experienced and what their birthing needs were. And we published that together in a book called Female Genital Mutilation um, and Obstetric Care. And then I became involved in um, Canada's maternal child health system. And I suggested to the Public Health Agency of Canada that we do a survey of what women's experiences of giving birth in Canada were. And we would never done a survey of women's experiences here. All the policies and decisions made about birth care were made by professionals, um, caregivers, um, doctors, midwives, and so on, who were caring for women giving birth. So to actually ask women themselves what they had experienced, what they wanted, what they needed, was a new thought. So we ran a survey of, uh, we actually included over 6,000 women's responses, and they were... um, randomly selected, which is a technical term for very carefully selected, so they represented the population as a whole, based on the census of the population. So it's a very rare way to do research and a very amazingly accurate way to get a real feeling for what women in Canada um, experienced during their birthing time, pregnancy, birth and postpartum. And that became another focus of women giving birth in difficult situations because we are highly medicalized here. So in Canada, so and this applies very much to the North American continent, it's even perhaps more medicalized in America than it is in Canada. And um, women's experiences can be quite difficult under those situations as well. So um, my research is focused on, on women giving birth in very hard conditions in different ways around the world. And at that point, I became quite interested in um, some historical questions, um, including what happened, I thought, well, you know, where did women give birth where it was very difficult, and one of the situations was obvious, obviously in um, Europe during the Nazi era, and I thought, what had happened to birth in those situations? So, that started me on a 20-year study, if not more now, um, on what happened in the Holocaust, and um, I had heard some stories. I had been exposed to it as a child. My daughter had read some books, and we had become interested. Our, as they grew up, I have three daughters. As they grew up, a couple of them went and studied the Holocaust at university, and it inspired me to go back and really study and think about what happened to the Holocaust. And I traveled to Israel. I did some courses with Yad Vashem, um, and I read hundreds, actually closer to thousands of books on the Holocaust. In fact, I did. I read nothing else for for a couple of decades and it took about 12 years before i managed to put together the book that we are talking about today birth sex and abuse women's experiences or voices under nazi rule so um that's really how i got into it. it is just with a fascination and an involvement all my life with women giving birth in difficult circumstances and looking at the nazi era was a, a different approach in that it was historical and i had to learn a new approach to research Um, and a new subject matter from the beginning which is vast, unbelievably vast subject matter Um, and again brought my focus on what was happening during childbirth which was interesting for me and applied it to the Nazi era and that's how I got into it. It's an old story to answer your quick question but that's what it was. (laughs) Wonderful.
0: No, I'm a historian by training so I'm particularly interested in some of the source material that you were able to access, um, particularly the 1983 conference on women in the Holocaust. Can you tell us a little bit about some of this material?
1: Okay, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, because the, the primary sources, there are a number. Uh, there are obviously books written about women in the Holocaust or about the Holocaust by academics, by historians, um, which is one source, but they're often very theoretical and they impose their understanding and uh, perspectives on what other women have said. And I decided I didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to try and go back to what the women themselves said and thought and it happened to them. So I tried to go back to what existed, what was written or what was available um, that came from the time of the Holocaust from 1933 to 1945 or shortly after. And I did come across women's, a few women's books that had re- reported their own stories that they themselves had written, those few who managed to survive um, and wrote and had the courage and, and uh, ability to, to write their stories that had been written in the early decade or so after the war ended. There were also a few um, abstracts and diaries, little bits that had survived, that had managed to be written during the actual period of the Holocaust. Um, But those were rare. Then I was lucky to know and to find that there are vast troves of um, archives which contain interviews, Testimonies that have been given by women during major programs that have tried to sort to seek out and collect testimonies from women at all the all ages, um, and these these were good and bad. Um, the earliest ones that were done were intended to be um, recorded for family members for their children to learn and to know what had happened to their grandmother, for example. Um, but because of that. Um, The interviewers were very hesitant to broach intimate subjects like pregnancy, birth, sexuality. um, And the women themselves were not willing often to talk about it. This was a time when women were very modest and um, exposure and discussion of intimate details and personal experiences was just not acceptable. Most women never talked even to their husbands about what had happened to them. Um, if it was uh, an intimate experience or a, a rape or a sexual exchange experience and so on. so they these earlier testimonies that have been done didn't include much information about women's birthing experiences or sexual experiences. Some of the interviewers that interviews that were done lately, like the showah foundation, this the Steven Spielberg collection that he initiated and started, which is an amazing collection of something like, over 60,000 testimonies now from women in different um, genocides, but especially the Holocaust. Um, there, it's an amazing resource. But, and some of those women did talk about um, their birth and sexual experiences. So I could rely on testimonies. Um, but I also found that some of those, um, and this applied more to my later work when I focused on children's sexual experiences, um, many of those were, were in archives that were restricted, restricted access. Either because when the women gave the testimony, they chose not to have it available or not publicly available, or because the archivists didn't want to release that information. And there's a whole debate about that. And uh, if we ever talk about my other book, I can tell you more about that. Um, (laughs) Thank you. But um, so the information I relied on was as far as I could possibly get was information written around the time of the war or shortly afterwards. And, of course, the testimonies that women did give in multiple ways. Um, and that formed the basis of the book. But as I wrote, I you know I, I could thought of summarizing what women said, and I thought, I cannot say it better than they did. When women themselves wrote their stories and revealed what had happened to them, their words were just so powerful um, and, and expressed so accurately in terms of reflecting their thinking and feeling that I decided – unlike a historical text and so on, to include quotes from what women said, what women's own voices reflected. And so that is why the book is actually filled with um, quotes of what women themselves wrote and reported or reported in testimonies and and so on. Um, And that's what made the flavor of the book um, as powerful as I think it it is, because it actually says what women said. And it's 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 remarkable in in you know they couldn't I couldn't have said it any better than they did, and so I gave them the credit for what they say
0: now, I agree with you that is one of the most extraordinary elements to be able to hear women talking about some of these things, even when they're horrific Still, it's to hear their voices um so let's talk a little bit about the ideological and policy framework in Germany in the 30s and 40s that shape women's
1: experiences
0: of motherhood and reproduction
1: okay Jeanette so maybe we can hold that thought for a minute because I didn't come I just thought I did not completely answer your question you asked about the women in the in the in the Uh, Holocaust Conference that was held in the 1980s. And I need to tell you about that because it provides the background to this too. Um, In the immediate aftermath of the war, um, people did not focus on Jews. First of all, it took quite a while for for the the world to realize that Jews had been a primary target for extermination. And when they did, the immediate focus of researchers and, and those who studied this area was to focus on Jews as a group, not on men and women. So the whole issue of women's experiences had been ignored for the first many decades, four or five decades after the war. And the first time that we really began to be interested in and looked at and started to study women's experiences was when this amazing conference was convened in New York in the early 1980s, about 1983 if I recall correctly, um, where women survivors um, were gathered together at a conference and began to tell their stories of what had happened to them. But even then, they did not talk about pregnancy and sexual experiences for another 10 years. It took until the late 1990s before women began to express what had happened to them in a pregnancy, about pregnancy and especially about sexual abuse. Um, and so it's only in the last 20, 30 years, 20 years really, that we've begun to, store, to explore women's experiences. Um, and that really puts it in a, in a different perspective. Uh, it's not just Jews. It's not just men. It's actually women. And it was very much because of the, you know, the feminist movement became to, uh, became stronger, and people were more focused on looking at women's experiences, and that applied in, in to the Holocaust literature too. Yes. Okay. So. so-
0: Let's talk about some of those experiences. Um, what is it like in this period for German women?
1: Okay. I, I Let's start with something. That. Yes. Yes. This is also something else that I did in the book, which is not usual. Um, many books about the Holocaust focus just on the Jewish experience. And obviously that's valid, but I thought it would only make sense if you put together what German women had experienced as well as what Jew- Jewish women experienced, because that's what fitted into Hitler's um, ideology. And this is the framework that, that bound the whole Nazi um, exposure in, with regard to extermination and why Jews became a target and so on. He was intent on creating a master race. And that is what he was. his intention was right from the beginning. And in his mind, that master race was this pure, strong, healthy, powerful, um, and Aryan-like uh, in appearance um, group of people. Um, and the Aryan look was a more uh, Nordic look, the blonde, blue-eyed, strong, athletic, healthy person. So unless you fitted that stereotype... Um, you were regarded as life less worthy of life. And that really underlined and underlaid his whole approach. So from a a Jewish person's experience, and the Jews were at the bottom rung of what was acceptable um, in terms of uh, acceptable Aryan appearance or uh, being, um, they were in fact the, the, the vermin of the world, they were less than human, they were regarded as inhuman, they were re- even uh, dehumanized in as many ways as possible, so they were just actually lice and carriers of illness and typhus and uh, contamination, and in, the Jewish, in, in their sense also they were also seen as uh, sexually predators. Um, about to just rape anybody going and and that was really the approach of the Germans towards um, the Jews. So they were easy targets easy in in inverted commas for Nazi um, extermination. Of course the Roma, the Sinti, the homosexuals the lesbians also fitted into those categories and others. On the other hand um, Hitler wanted to create this master race of perfect in inverted commas people. Um, and that meant encouraging the approved Aryan German people um, to, cr- to have as many babies as possible, to reproduce as much as possible. So German women were encouraged if they were of pure enough Aryan stock and they, they tested people's, um, traced people's inheritance and genetics back to quite a few generations back to make sure there was no foreign influence or Jewish influence and so on and um, only women who were uh, approved were encouraged to have babies and in fact forced to have babies in many ways because abortion was banned contraception was banned and in the weimar period in the period between world war one and period world war ii germany had actually become very liberal and very advanced it was a center of reproductive development and freedom um and uh, contraception and women's sexuality, all of these things were encouraged in the period before the war um, before the Second World War when Hitler came to power he abandoned all of that, he forbade all of that the laws came into effect which forbade abortion for German Aryan women Um, contraception was prevented and uh, any kind of um, appropriate uh, reproduction of German women was encouraged Um, they even to the point where if a woman was no longer willing to have babies in a marriage or unable to have babies in a marriage, it was legitimate grounds for divorce and for the man to be able to take an, another wife or another woman who was willing to have children. Um, women were, young women were encouraged to have a child for the Führer, uh, even if they were not married. And there, there were facilities created. There were homes called uh, Lebensborn homes, the Lebensborn homes provided um, wonderful m- medical care and places for the wives of the SS, his personal um, guards, to, to have their babies and have them looked after well. Or for young women who, who were uh, not married to, to have a baby, and this was not condemned at all, They, if they had a good spouse or partner. Um, the father of the child was also a good Aryan stock they could have their babies in these homes as well. And there were many of them around, uh, around Germany. So there was many, many ways. Young women were encouraged to get married, couples were given special grants, housing allowances, furniture allowances, anything that could make their lives better. Women who had multiple children were given um, medals, cross and uh, honor crosses, um, if they had four, six, eight children or 10 children. They were, they were um, honoured as, as good mothers. Um, women with 10 children, German women with 10 children, for example, um, had an, a German honour cross, um, and they had the honour of having uh, Hitler as the godfather for their child, and if it was a boy, his name would be Adolf. Um, many, many ways in which um, reproduction was encouraged um, amongst appropriate, in inverted commas, uh, Aryan uh, couples in, in Germany. So that was the German situation. Now, you know, that in itself is, is difficult, but it, it, at least it were, you, you, were, you were alive. Um, women who were not appropriate, you, women who didn't meet these racial stocks were actually sterilized as well. And this was part of the approach which applied to all German people that people who are regarded as not acceptable and appropriate meeting the the standards of the the approved Aryan type um, were not allowed to have children. And they were sterilized. Um, So many, many thousands of people in Germany, and not just Jewish women, but thousands of people in Germany, uh, those in mental institutions, those with hereditary illnesses, Um, those with uh, who even it extended first of all it started with just the illnesses that were targeted if you had any particular illnesses like epilepsy for example you were not allowed to have children you were sterilized and then it extended to um, people who didn't have appropriate behavior like they were socially Um, not, uh, they were work shy, they didn't want to work, they didn't have a good work record, they didn't conform to to the goals of society, Um, they were perhaps sex workers in those days called prostitutes, Um, any of those were were sterilized, and there were thousands of them. And ultimately, at the time of the, when the war itself broke out, 1939 or so, 1938-39, this program changed into euthanasia. So people who did not meet the appropriate standards of Aryan supremacy uh, were simply murdered, euthanized. And often this was in hospitals, in in special centers, like mental institutions. They would all um, be be put to death.
0: Yes. Um, At the same time, you very clearly make the point in the book that German women are cannot really be perceived as victims, despite basically being treated like incubators, right? So why do you say that?
1: Okay, Um, look, this is one of the concerns and why most of the Holocaust literature does not look at the German experience, because very often um, the criticism is labeled that if you do put German women as victims and Jewish women as victims, you're equating it. There is no equivalence in what happened to German women and what happened to Jewish women. Um, yes, it might have been hard to have more babies than you wanted or even to be sterilized uh, if you didn't want to or not able to marry because you weren't of appropriate Aryan stock, um, to use a strange word. Um, that, those are hard things, but at least you were not killed. Jewish women had no choice. There was no equivalence. They they couldn't choose not to have babies but still be allowed to live. They were just targeted for death. And that's all there was. And especially women who were pregnant or women who had small children, they were the first to go to the gas chambers. As soon as they arrived in any of the extermination camps, um, it was pregnant women and women with small children that were all sent to the gas. The only ones who were allowed to live if were younger women who were perhaps still able to work, um, and could produce goods for the, the the German industry and the war machine, which they needed, um, which is what the concentration camp and, and labor camp uh, people, Jewish people were used for. Um, but they um, were only allowed to live for a while. They actually had to work in t- intolerable, terrible, cruel um starvation and filth conditions until they eventually died so they were worked to death Um, there was no way for jewish people and jewish women to escape um, and to avoid being murdered and being killed and and that really is the difference so there is no equivalence yes it might have been a bit difficult and and german women at least especially after the war when germany had enormous um, financial problems but not during the war um, they did have tough times but they were alive, and they weren't necessarily all that badly off. Whereas the Jewish women had no choice but to be killed. Right.
0: Um, what about the circumstances of Jewish women, short of of being in the camps, ghettos for in the ghettos, for example, is their circumstance in any way better?
1: Oh, I wish it were better. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, they, the, the situation in the, in the ghettos was better than the camps. The ghettos were, were established before the war broke out in most cases and early war times, um, but um, it was really a way of bringing Jewish people together and putting them into a very confined space where they were usually walled in or fenced in um, and kept under incredibly difficult situations like starvation rations, um, and filth, it was often, the ghettos were often created in the the most de- devastated parts of towns, the worst parts of towns, where the sewerage was bad, where everything was uh, really dilapidated and falling apart. Um, and they were forced to live in unbelievably overcrowded conditions um, with very little resource, no medicines coming in, very little, unless it was smuggled in or bribery got it in. Um, and, and food as well was desperate. So the people basically lived and died in horrible conditions in the ghettos. Um, And pregnancy was banned in some ghettos. We know about the Lithuanian ghettos in particular, where pregnancy was banned. And if a woman did carry a a baby, um, not only would she be killed, but her whole family would be killed. So there was huge pressure on the doctors to uh, abort women or to kill the babies uh, to produce infanticide. And we actually have the minutes of meetings held by doctors in some of the Lithuanian ghettos about how they were going to deal with this. How do you handle it? What do you do? And some women, you know, obviously chose to have an abortion um, because to save her family or her life. Um, Others chose not to um, and and went into hiding with the baby. Some managed to, to smuggle the baby out and there are amazing stories about how that was done. And and try to hide the child with a friend who was living on the so-called Aryan side of the city or the town. Um, And others abandoned their children on the doorsteps of of convents or monasteries in the hope that somebody would look after them. Sometimes they would just leave them in the street nearby in in the hope that somebody at least would look after the child and the child might live. And there were some successful stories, but the majority of, of those mothers and babies really destined to die one way or another and then of course it made it having all these people crowded into the ghettos made it very easy to transport them you had all the jews collected in one area you can put them on trains and ship them off to the, the labor camps or the concentration camps which were devastatingly horrific um really terrible situations so yes were women in the ghettos better off than they were in the in the camps yes um but it's relative to what your standard of good is exactly is yeah exactly and, you know, once um, they got to the camps uh they were targeted for for murder and uh the gas chambers in most cases ought to be worked to death um okay. and and most died very few survived right um
0: what about the um the rape of jewish
1: women in the camps okay you know, but to what do Jewish we... women is an interesting thing because um, one of the things that was part of the whole Nazi story was the integration of the medical profession into a single unitary organized professional body. We are very comfortable. We know about doctors being um, in, organized into medical professions, um, lawyers organized into medical into legal professions, and so on. Um, this didn't. Ha- this wasn't in place in Germany. But when the Nazis came to power, they integrated all the medical doctors into a medical profession and imposed the science of race on their studies. They had to learn what is called Rassenkunde, racial, racial science. Um, and part of that was the idea that the race must be kept pure. So Rassenkunde became a shame, the racial shame. And racial shame was having sex with a person who wasn't appropriately um, Aryan, which specifically meant having sex with Jewish women. And this was forbidden. Um, the result was that sex did occur, it might have contained some of it or controlled some of it, but sex certainly did occur. The difference being that if a German woman had sex with a Jewish, a German man had sex with a Jewish woman, he was more likely to murder her afterwards, so that she couldn't reveal what had happened to him and, and get him into trouble. Um, so that was one of the, the hardest parts that, that occurred there, but sex did occur. And you ask specifically about the camps. Um, most of, in, in almost all situations, men and women were separated in the camps. So families were split up. Children were killed immediately. Women might be allowed to live and men might be allowed to live if they weren't too old or too young, um, but then they, they, they worked, but they lived in separate camps. So the only opportunities for sex were, were, were limited. Um, for one thing, in the camps themselves, um, the women were, were shaved, um, all, all bodily hair was shaved. Um, they were dressed in these rags, um, which were usually not changed, except very rarely, so they were filthy. They had no access to the latrines. There would be one latrine for thousands of people, um, and they were filthy. People had diarrhoea a lot of the time. Um, the food was incredibly bad, and the water was minimal and limited, and and women simply had no means of keeping themselves clean. Um, the other thing that happened was that sometimes men came into the camps to help fix whatever had gone wrong, the workmen would come into the camps. And they sometimes could bring, because they would usually be Germans, not, uh, not um, or Germans or other Aryan kinds from different countries that were also prisoners, and they would come into the camps and they would take their lunch breaks in the latrines. And women who were so desperate that they would sometimes try to uh, attract the men to themselves and try to barter or a crust of bread or a shoelace because having shoes was, was desperately important, otherwise, your feet would be torn to shreds in, in, on the rough ground and so on. And infections would likely lead to uh, you know cuts would get infected and then lead to your illness and death. So, having shoes was important, having a shoelace was important um, as just a way of tying your things together, a rag around your feet, or so on. Um, so, they would exchange sex for. Um, something that might save their lives or perhaps for medicines which might save them or a friend or a family member that they were trying to help and so on. So sex did occur in the camps and sometimes these were uh, German sex partners. um, Sometimes it was the guards and they too uh, would try to eliminate their source of of the object of their sexual um, attractions so that they weren't uh, exposed either. So it was a very difficult and very dicey experience. But it's not, and yes, somebody once asked me, was that consensual sex? And yes, it was, but not in the sense that we regard sex as consensual, that it's something that you want to do, that it's a loving experience or a good relationship that you want to share. This was a situation where um, they didn't want to, but they had to. It was what we have called sexual exchange rather than a a sexual um, encounter or collaborative or or consensual sex. It was forced there's no other way, really way of thinking about it. Oh no,
0: it reminds reminds me of um, slavery and sexuality on Southern plantations in the old Mm -hmm. American South. Yes,
1: had no choice, yeah. Um, and, and the other side of it, there's, there were. There, this is an amazing part of it in my mind, um, there was a whole system of uh, brothels that were set up by the Nazis across Europe, not just in the camps, and it was in the camps too. Um, because in the First World War, there had been a huge amount of venereal disease and it was uncontrolled and uh, you, you, uh, no way to manage it. So this time in the Second World War, um, brothels were established so that at least you could monitor the women and have health checks and uh, make sure they were as clean as could be or as uninfected as could be. Um, and sexual um, rewards were there for good performance, good soldiering, and so on. So brothels were set up all over Europe. Um, sometimes they were used as spy agencies, you know, for pillow talk and so on. We were monitored especially for the, the higher level Um, uh, 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 officers that might have used them. Um, But in the camps, there were also brothels set up primarily for um, prisoners of war, also for the SS, uh, or the guards, uh, who weren't always uh, Germans, um, Ukrainians, and so on. Um, And women were forced to serve in them. They had little choice. They would at first they tried to entice them to work in the brothels by saying, you know, we'll get better rations, you'll, you won't have such to work outside in the freezing cold, um, you'll have uh, better clothing. Um, and, and all of that might have been a little bit true, but they were, work, they were sexually abused until there really were nothing left of them and, and literally would die. And of course, if they got pregnant, they would then be killed. Um or if they got sexually infected infections, they would also be sent off to the gas chambers as well. And the stories, there were many doubts at first as to whether the Jewish women served as prostitutes as well. And yes, in some cases we know that they were. Um, um, and and so that created another whole problem too. But the brothels were a, a horrid way of uh, a sexual activity, but it was it's just another form of rape. And that's all there is to multiple rapes. These women might serve um, 30, 40 men in a session and every, every evening and the weekends and so on. It, it, and they had 15 minutes per woman. It was done by, by, by a bell system. A bell would ring and the men could line up outside the door and they would be allowed to go in. Ten minutes later, another bell would ring to say, finish up. And uh, 15 minutes later, it would be a changeover and the next one would come in. And there were peepholes in the doors so that the guards could watch and make sure what's was happening. Um, it, really an unbelievable system of abuse that was imposed on on women in the camps, not just Jewish women.
0: I had not realized that there was such an extensive network of brothels. Uh, that was something I associated exclusively, exclusively with the Japanese military
1: during mm-hmm. the war they oh I had no idea <laughs> their stories are even worse in in many ways um, there hor- the, are the rape of Nankin is one of the, this, the the most famous stories about that where women were really abused in the most horrific way in in that part of the world but yes um, the camps in 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 the Nazi era were were also pretty bad
0: uh, um, let's Circle back around and talk about the role of the medical professions in all of this. It's another very important part of your book: um, the the role during the war and the way that shaped the perceptions of the medical prese- profession afterwards, and the perceptions of their research in the post-war period.
1: Okay. Their, their, role, their role actually began long before the war. They were in, involved, they were responsible for the sterilization program, the eugenics program, which was the sterilization of all so-called non-acceptable Aryan people um, during the early years of the Nazi regime, the 1930s, and uh, also for the euthanasia program. These were doctors that did this. Doctors sterilized women, and doctors killed them. Um, and the there were also nurses, but it was the medical profession um, that were responsible for killing women and deciding who was to be sterilized and who was to be uh, euthanized. Um, and in the camps, the doctors also took this opportunity, some of them. And by the way, there were hundreds of doctors involved in the eugenics program and the euthanasia program. Um, and in the camps, there were multiple doctors who became very involved in doing research. The kind of research was often to um, to help Germans survive. So what would happen to people at very high altitudes or when they're in, immersed in freezing water or different forms of treatment for, for um, illnesses like um, gangrene or whatever, um, they would infect people's uh, limbs and then see if some treatment might work better um, and it, it, in, it, there were unbelievably horrific uh, experiments that were done by doctors in multiple camps. Um, I was particularly interested in those that related to reproductive health. So there were multiple experiences, experiments on how to sterilize vast numbers of people. The thinking being that if you could sterilize all these Jewish women so they could never have babies in the camps and you could do it in a and because there were vast numbers of women in the camps, if you could do it in an efficient way, you know, 10 minutes or so on and everyone is done, then she could live and work for Germany but never be able to reproduce. And and the same for men. So there were experiments done on women, there were experiments done on men. Um, some of them involved um, chemicals and some of them involved surgery. Um, and some and of, them of them involved radiation,
0: if oh, memory many,
1: serves. Yes, radiation. <sighs> Um, uh, was very much part of it. And the idea there was you could you know, have to stand, go up to a a counter where you had to fill in a form, and in the 10 minutes that you had to fill in the form, you actually had radiation beamed at your um, reproductive organs, and that would perhaps leave you sterilized. And then, of course, you had to check if you were sterilized. So those women were then subjected to surgeries to see what had happened to their uterus or their ovaries, or one ovary was removed, or part of the uterus was removed, or the whole uterus, or both ovaries. It was just a series of of horrific um, interventions in in women. And, of course, doctors were the ones who did all these experiments. After the war, there um, there were Nuremberg trials. There were a series of trials that were set up by the Allied judicial systems to try so-called Nazi um, uh, perpetrators, and one special trial was directed to the doctors. So they had a particular trial with about 20 doctors on trial. And they interviewed them and, and examined them in terms of what they had done. And the remarkable finding that emerged from these was that very, none of them, virtually none of them, expressed any kind of guilt for what they had done. And they actually could not see a problem of what they re- why their research was not being approved because it was very valuable in their eyes. Um, and they, some of them asked, can't they have paper and pen to, to record their, their findings and their research results, because this is so important for posterity. And before anything happens to them, if they were perhaps punished after this uh, trial, they wanted their research to be documented. Um, and it, it's quite horrific to think that they had no remorse for what had, they had done. But when you go back and when you think about it, um, the kind of propaganda that had been in place in Germany was phenomenal. Um, Joseph Goebbels was there in charge of, of propaganda, and he was, he was brilliant in, in, in how he did it. Um, every aspect of society had been infiltrated with this anti-Semitic approach um, and the, the pure German spirit and, and a German master race and so on. So whether it was children's school books, um, children's reading books, mathematics um, examples, how many cans would it take to kill 2,000 people and so on, um, all of these unbelievable stories. Um, children who go to the doctor, be careful if it's a Jewish doctor, he's going to entice you and, and be he's a licentious uh, 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 predator, sexual predator. All of these kinds of, and this obviously the obvious image, the horrific um, stereotypical image of, you know, the hook nosed big fat man who was uh, uh, most repulsive looking was of course the stereotypical image of the Jew. So all of these stories, there were posters on every street corner, there all the magazines, the newspapers, uh, the radio was controlled, movies were controlled and created by the propaganda ministry. All teaching people, and of course there were these um, camps that children, the, the Hitler Youth, that they grew up in and had to grow up in, were all filled with propaganda, with these images and this ideology being pushed into them. So they grew up in this world, knowing and thinking that this was the right thing to do. That these people, the Jewish people, and the so-called others, the, the Gypsies, the uh, Roma and Sinti, um, etc., were were um, vermin. They were just this, this despicable component of humanity, and in order to improve humanity and make the world a better place, you need to get rid of them. And that was the value that these doctors placed on so-called Jewish people, who so-called were non-human, um, lice-ridden, licentious, unpleasant people, that we should just rid the world of them. And they stated statements of some of the leaders of the Nazi regime were, it was, our, our, we were the bravest people, we should be honored for what we did. And that's how the doctors thought about their research. They should be honored for the kind of research they did because this was really good for humanity. And they were the brave people who had the courage to do it. And, and that's and, really where the medical profession came in.
0: Yeah, and not, not just doctors, right? Some of the SS, administrators of of camps, it made perfectly good sense to them that they could spend their day torturing and murdering people and then go home to their loving families and just act as if it had been another day in the office.
1: And it was. For them, it was. And they were doing good things in their own perception of themselves. And that is the only way I can understand it. We try and look back and we said, oh, maybe they were just following orders or it was an authoritarian society. If someone told them to do something, they would do it. I think this just makes excuses for them. The reality is that they thought what they were doing was good and was right. There was no reason for them to explain their behavior. It was the right thing to do at the time. At the
0: time. And the idea that with enough effort, you can convince people that that is the right thing to do, I think is the part part that I found so horrifying.
1: It's horrifying. And there's been some, there was quite a lot of research. The Milgram experiments in the years after the war tried to tackle this. And we know that people will obey orders if they're told to. Um, And if nobody speaks out to stop them, they will continue to obey orders, even to the point of hurting others. Uh, Ah, the Milgram experiments. Yes, this is what people are able to do. Um, There is one very wonderful and famous um, researcher of the Holocaust who's looked mainly at the the Einsatzgruppen, the the, uh, group that accompanied the German army when it invaded uh, the Russian areas. And they just went into the villages, and huge massacres of Jewish people took place in, in many of those places, in places like Ukraine and so on. Um, massive, massive extermination. 33,000 people, uh, Jewish people were killed at Babi Yar, in a place in near Ukraine, um, in, in two days. Um, and this was uh, the, the Einsatzgruppen were very much part of, of those kinds of movements. And this particular man who's done this research, his name is Father Patrick Desbois, he is a Christian father, um, but he spent his uh, many, many years of his life now studying these groups, Um, and and he tells these most horrific stories, but he makes the statement that, he said, I belong to a race that kills two-year-old children. And... And, I, and, and, you know, it's, it's the amazing power of an ideology that can make people do this. I have expanded that lately, you know, more in my more recent writings. I, I love that statement of his, and I have to accept it. I belong to a race that kills two-year-old children, but I add, and that tortures them and murders them and, and rapes them first. Um, and that is just really what what some of us are capable of doing in the right conditions, given the right kind of background education, thinking, and an ideology, and uh, it comes with all kinds of ideologies, even religious ideologies can can. And we've seen it; we see it around us today. I mean, the Holocaust is in the past, but its lessons are still here for us today. We see it t- today with religious fanaticism that will quite happily murder people, behead them on TV, and so on, um, and and. It, and, and I don't include people who are spiritual in the sense that they believe in goodness and, and try to live that way. But who those that believe that their way of thinking is the only way and the right way and impose that on others who do not and will be cruel to others who do not uh, conform to their way of thinking, that is a dangerous ideology. And sometimes it is religiously focused. Religion is an ideology. It just has a belief in a higher power that is directing all of this. Uh, uh, yes, so. it's dangerous.
0: Um, let me ask you one final question before I let you go. I think I've taken up mm-hmm. enough time. <laughs> what are you working on now?
1: Okay, um, since I wrote that particular book, I obviously came across many stories about child sex abuse in the Holocaust. And I became intrigued with the question of child sex abuse. And I worked in this area, read enormously in it, and two books have emerged from that. The first was a book called Betrayed, Child Sex Abuse in the Holocaust, where I look specifically at that. But just since then, and this has only been out now for about a month, um, I have published a book on child sex abuse. Um, And it's called Power, Profit and Perversion is its subtitle. So Child Sex Abuse, Power, Profit and Perversion. That's just come out. And that's the, the culmination of this last six to eight years of, of thinking. And that has been a mind-boggling experience as well, of the extent of child sex abuse across the world globally in all different settings at all different levels, from the, the family to the institution, like schools, which we many of us are familiar with. We've heard the residential schools, for example, in Canada and in the States. Um, and then on a, on a more global level in the military um, on the internet, or through using the internet, not, and not necessarily on the internet, but also um, and child child sex trafficking, and uh, it's just absolutely horrific and amazing as to how uh, broad and extensive child sex abuse is, and even more so, how we uh, facilitate it and condone it, and don't punish it to the extent that perhaps it ought to be. So that's the other book, and now in my Uh, I'm also working on um, uh, abuse of women in childbirth, which is another book more on the perinatal side, the medical care of women and and how that can be abusive as well, and often is abusive. So I have another book coming out on that. Um, And I'm beginning to look at the rescue of children from the Holocaust situation. So that's the current work. Oh, my gosh. All of this is
0: just... It's important. I'm not comfortable saying it's fascinating, but it is incredibly important. These are stories that we absolutely need to hear. Um, I shall let you go. Thank you so much, Beverly, for this interview on this amazing book. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you for having me. Of course.